Welcome to The Deal with Yield, your podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. I'm Joel Whipperfirth, Director of Digital Transformation for Winfield United. And I'm Corey Evans, Technical Seed Manager for Winfield United. Corey, we're back with another installment of Yield Unsealed, our true or false game here on the show. And today we'll be tackling early season agronomics. Let's get into it. I can't wait. So it's uh, it's award season, so you're going to hear me open up the envelope. So somebody really, really sealed that one. They didn't want us to look at the questions beforehand. Well, I think it is yield unsealed, right? <laughs> All right. Uh, hopefully I don't do a Steve Harvey here and announce the wrong winner. <laughs> Let's go after the first question. All right. The growing point of a corn plant remains below ground until about V5, which keeps smaller plants reasonably protected from the effects of above-ground frost. True or false? The answer is true. So as a corn emerges, right, we get the, the corn seed to imbibe water, the germination process starts, that coleoptile breaks the seed coat, it emerges, and once it starts to see sunlight in response to far red to red light, it basically sets its growing point at about three quarters of an inch below ground, and it starts to emerge and grow leaves. When we finally get to V4, V5, that growing point starts to emerge and get above ground, and then we start worrying about frost problems. Now, frost is not the only issue early in the season. We also worry about things like disease, and we worry about you know insects chewing on that seed before it gets up and out of the ground. Okay, so true question. That is when the growing point uh, comes above ground. And actually, you know, that's one of the things you've seen some some growers, you know, you could actually go out there before V5 and basically stock chop that entire plant off, which sometimes you see growers, I don't know, when you get some frost, they're never really sure if they should do something or nothing. But you could certainly go out and mow that entire vegetative state off before V5 and the plant would grow right back. Fun fact, it's also a key way to determine growth stage later in the season when you can't count the bottom leaves. So we know in that crown, the first four true leaves are sitting right before the first inner node. So once you cut open a plant when it's, you know, V10, V12, you look for the crown, that's the first four nodes. And when you get that first inner node elongation, you can start counting the fifth node. Awesome. Well, that was an easy, I, I feel yeah. like that was an easy question. <laughs> Thanks for the softball in the first yeah. time. Okay, are you ready? Yep. Nitrogen stabilizers are only economical when nitrogen is applied in the fall. Huh. Well, I'm going to say false because the environment is a big, wide, variable place. And, you know, nitrogen stabilizers, all of that is broken out into kind of two different places. One of them is going to stabilize nitrogen in, in the soil and keep it from converting and being a leachable form. But there's another form of stabilizer that would protect it from volatilization into uh, into the atmosphere. And so, you know, I think the one, you know, we talk about primarily uh, nitropyrin or, you know, the, the commercial name for it is oftentimes NSERV, really commonly known. That particular one can work both in fall and in spring. It's, it's less common for it to be used in the spring, though, unless you're in some really, really wet environments and, you know, maybe you're on some, some highly leachable soils. But certainly there's some data out there that suggests if you're on those environments, NSERV during the season can work. 
uh, or you know, out of the fall season. But the other ones I think are really important that when you're when you're talking about protecting urea from volatilization, those stabilizers and you know, Corey, I'd have to lean back into you. So anything from NBPT to the three, four new modes of action that are out here, you know, I'd turn that back to you. What are the, these new modes of action are coupled with NBPT or, uh, you know, how are those working? Yeah. So really the goal is working on the urea molecule. And let's say you're top dressing your corn and it's uh, a warm June or July day. The worst thing to happen is for volatilization occur. If you don't get a half inch of rain, let's say you, you only get a tenth of an inch or you get some dew, that causes the urea enzyme to start breaking down and start volatilizing as N2 gas. So these volatilization stabilizers help prevent that breakdown for you know a certain amount of time to either A, get a rain, or B, work it in with a, a cultivator or some kind of equipment that gets it below ground. So when that urea enzyme breaks down, it attracts to water in the soil and we don't lose it as gas. Yeah, I feel like these nitrogen stabilizers for stabilization of, of urea or UAN on the surface have really followed our seed treatment story where you know, it's a lot like Skittles. There's red ones, there's green ones, there's you know yellow ones. And you know it all comes down to the amount of active ingredient in there and the research that proves those molecules stabilize nitrogen. Yeah, and it's really sorting out what's my worry for nitrogen loss? Is it going down or is it going up? And some stabilizers do one and not the other. Some do both. And I think just sorting that out by asking the right questions is key. All right, Corey, uh, yield unsealed, true or false questions. Zinc is a key micronutrient for early season plant health. When zinc levels are adequate, there is more consistency, germination, and plant emergence. Boy, Joel, can I say that's uh, true, but there's more to the story? (laughs) Okay, let's hear it. So zinc is immobile in the plant and in the soil. And zinc really works as the forklift operator in that corn cell specifically. So as you think of a emerging corn seedling, you know, go through the process of germination. The first thing that happens, that corn imbibes water. The second thing that happens is basically a, a hormonal cascade that triggers that corn seed to actually start to emerge. Phosphorus is the source of rocket fuel, the actual energy that produces the ability for that corn seed to emerge. Zinc is what starts unpacking some of those, you know, protein, sugars, and carbohydrates that are in the endosperm to provide that source of energy to get that corn seedling up and out of the ground. So that makes it true. However, we know that zinc is important all season long, and the fact that it is immobile in the soil and in the plant requires a strategy that encompasses the whole year. Okay, so true. it's a true-false. It's true, true and maybe false. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, as I remember back to, you know, you talked about the criticality of zinc early season and how it helps that plant get up out of the ground and really start that early season nutritional mobility. I also think about the amount of zinc that the plant needs changes throughout the season. And in the early part, it only needs a little bit, but actually the volume of zinc is actually taken up post tassel. And I think that's one of the, the important pieces that it's not just about starter zinc or seed treatment zinc or even a micronutrient foliar. It's also about having good soil test fertility on zinc for that late season uptake. I think it's really a, a four-pronged approach, right? You can 
supply zinc to the seed as a seed treatment. That's why all of our cropland corn is treated with zinc. You could apply zinc through an in-furrow treatment with starter fertilizer. Of course, you have a fall application of dry material, and then it's supplying that in season, whether it's V5 or throughout the growing season to make sure you have a steady supply of zinc as it works as a forklift operator in that corn plant. Awesome. All right, Corey. I'm up. Here's the envelope. Are you ready, Joel? Ah. Joel, plant growth regulators applied at planting can help establish a more uniform stand and can help plants weather early season stress. True or false? Yeah. So, you know, plant growth regulators, you know, I think the term has two sides to it. The one side of it is the herbicide plant growth regulators, and certainly applying those to the wrong crop will not help that. So I'm going to go in towards the plant growth regulators, you know, things like kinetin, gibberellic acid, and endobacteric acid. And, you know, in that situation, you know, one of the things that we've seen is there's some really important ratios. And you could probably, you know, you asked me the question, but by nature of education, you probably could articulate better the ratios and the consistency. And so I'll flip that back to you to say true, it can do that. But we've actually been working on some some new ratios, some new ways that those plant growth regulators have more consistency around that variability. Talk a little bit about that research. So I think that maybe the misconception is what we apply in plant growth regulators, like a product called Ascend, those are natural in the plant. So we're not adding anything foreign to it. We're just trying to boost these certain growth regulators to turn on the light switch or turn off the light switch at certain times. So specifically, when you look at ensuring germination success, Gibberellic acid is the key component of that, right? Gibberellic acid is really what starts this hormonal cascade to cause emergence. And there's a lot of different gibberellic acid families, right? So getting gibberellic acid is key, but making sure you have the right family is is even more critical to get germination off to a, a successful start. And then in season, when you could look at applying a plant growth regulator foliarly to V5 corn, for example, then that's where things like the kinetins and endobutyric acid have more of the weight and importance of, you know, actually causing a yield change. All right. So it's true. True. All right. Let's see what else we've got in here. We've got a couple left in here. I'm going to sort through. I think that's cheating, but... No, I'll, that's I'll, not cheating. I'll I want to get a good it. one for you. Once, once soil temperature. No, that one's an easy one. Here we go. Shallow corn planting depths can lead to poor root development and non-uniform plant stands. True or false? That would be true. So if you're going to screw up corn planting, I would rather you screw up and plant too deep. On the flip side, if you're going to screw up soybean planting, you're probably better off staying more shallow than deep. The corn emergence process is really built on planting at an inch and a half to two inches deep. And that's really about setting up that first set of nodal roots in a key spot. So that corn seed germinates, it breaks through the seed coat, and it sets up its first set of nodal roots at about three quarters of an inch below ground in response to to far red, red variations in light. If you plant too shallow, those nodal roots set up at a higher spot and they can't brace that corn plant for late season August winds when that corn plant is 10 feet tall. So shallow depth may feel good early in the season because it's in a warmer part of the soil. It emerges faster. It feels good. 
And then there's going to be a certain time where you can see it start to peter out of not having that depth set correctly and losing out on that nodal root placement. Sounds like uh, sounds like true. When I specifically think about some really sandy soil types, that's one of the interesting pieces where, you know, you talk about shallower depth might mean a little warmer soil. Well, if you don't have anything like organic matter to be able to hold that heat mass in there, one of the things I've actually experienced on some light, light soils, virtually no organic matter, is they can't hold the heat. And they actually experience that if you plant shallow in light soils, it actually doesn't stay warmer because you lose all the heat there. So they actually go down a little deeper in some of those situations. But yeah, I think overall, uh, you should plant corn too deep and plant beans too shallow is the rule that I use. Agreed. Awesome. Your turn. All right, Joel. We've got a few left. See, now you're sorting through one. Well, I'm trying to give you a softball, Joel. Okay. Okay. Most corn hybrids don't yield well at populations above 36,000 plants per acre, so it's best to keep populations low to maximize yield potential. True or false? Ah, that's false. Uh, You know, I... I think we've talked about this in prior episodes when we talk about the response to management scores. And, you know, there's solid data out there that would suggest that some hybrids, the highest one, giving you 21 bushels per acre response by adding 8,000 plants per acre, and the lowest one, you know, almost giving you about a bushel. And so it's really about paying attention to the specific hybrid and whether it's a fixed or flexed ear that would give you that answer. The other thing that, uh, you know, recognizing that this is digital and can really go anywhere, 36,000 is a local agronomic advice. And if you took 36,000 to some parts of the Dakotas, uh, you'd be laughed off the farm. I and think if that's you, two acres of seed there. Right, that might be. And if you took 36,000 to you know some parts of, uh, of Iowa, you might be laughed off the farm too there. If somebody's in a 20-inch row or something like that, uh, or even a twin row, you can probably get a little get a little higher population in some of those. So seed populations like agronomy are local. Seed and hybrid specific. Yes. Absolutely. All right, this is a good one. Here are farmers who apply post-emergence applications of 2,4-D or dicamba on soybeans shouldn't have to make pre-emergence herbicide applications. Joel, I think we've talked about this before. And when we start talking about the benefit of using dicamba or 2,4-D in our soybean herbicide decisions, it gives us another tool in the toolbox to kill weeds that emerge. However, it's still critical to make sure we have a pre-emergent herbicide because worst case scenario, what if you didn't apply a pre-emergent herbicide and then it rains, kind of like it did in 2019, and you don't have the ability to cover your acres because it's too wet and your you know, sprayer can't get across. If you were planning on using dicamba or 2,4-D to kill your weeds, it's going to be a lot harder to time it, and potentially you could have you know weeds that are over your label restrictions. So even though 2,4-D and dicamba are key critical modes of actions for your herbicide plans for 2020, it still starts with a pre-emergent herbicide. Yeah, and I think several farmers have, have in the last couple of years started to switch over into layering their residual herbicides and, and allowing multiple shots of rain to keep those weeds suppressed down, especially on a weed uh, like one of my favorites, water hemp, that doesn't really have, its germination season is sometime between January and December, it seems like most years, where it really keeps pushing all year long that an acetochlor application 
you know, even while the, the, the plant is growing, can help extend that late season, that July application, when, you know, the only thing you should be putting on your field for weed control in July is actually herbicide and insecticide control. So all your, you know, we always talk about you should go to the family picnic on the 4th of July and be all done trying to kill weeds. Anything else is really just vengeful. And especially if you're driving your sprayer across the field and you see significant weed pressure, you're probably a little too late, right? I would rather err on the side of driving the sprayer and starting to question why I'm spending money on diesel fuel to cover the acres when there's not a lot of weeds out there. That's probably when you know you're at the right time. What if it's an electrically powered drone sprayer? Oh, are we back in the hypotheticals, Joel? <laughs> All right. You've been listening to the Deal with Yield podcast. Uh, if you enjoy the show, please rate and review us online or on your podcast app. And for more episodes, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and dealwithyield.com.